Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. You know, once I learned about just all the ways that you can make money in real estate, um, and I, I could see that every mentor that I had in my life who was successful owned real estate or owned businesses. Yeah. And uh, I learned that we're in a capitalistic society, right? So the government relies on us to do two things, create jobs and create housing. Mm-hmm. And if you do those two things, you receive the maximum benefit of the tax code. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, guys. Thank you for joining me. Having trouble finding my controller there to turn the music down. Welcome, and thank you for joining me here on Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate it. Guys, I try to bring you gold every single week. If I do that, if you're enjoying it, if you really love the uh, the podcast and you've been to my website and you're really enjoying the content and you're getting a lot out of it, please give me a rating review. Wherever you listen to this podcast, go in, give me a rating review. I really appreciate it. It helps me get found and it helps me uh, bring this to other people. So, that would be awesome if you could do it. Guys, today I have another good one for you, a commercial slash multifamily real estate investor. Uh, he's really blowing it up and just a super impressive background, super impressive guy, lots of good content, lots and lots of good gold bombs being dropped in this episode. I have on the show for you today, Samson Jagoras. Samson is a 13 plus uh, your career in this business, in business in general. He has served as a futures and commodities broker, which gives him a really cool uh, perspective on his real estate investing company. Uh, yeah, commercial real estate broker, actively invest in real estate, served as the VP of strategic investments for Remax Commercial Alliance, built several businesses and acted as a chief strategy officer for an Inc. 500 company. And after nine years of helping that company scale to just an enormous size, he walked away from his super high uh, high income position to go all in on real estate. And just a cool guy, like I said, uh, sports background, uh, high finance, uh, he knew nothing about it, dove into high finance, figured it out, succeeded, got into real estate, and he is just building a huge, fantastic company with just, you know, we talked about this during the show, but um, just building it the right way. So I'm excited to bring this guest to you guys. I think you're going to get a lot out of it, particularly if you're interested in scaling and growing and putting together a multifamily portfolio. Guys, without any further ado, I give you Samson Jagoras. All right, Samson, thank you for being on the show. Welcome to Just Our Real Estate. Yeah, you bet. I'm uh, ready and excited to dig in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, me too. Uh, I didn't tell you this as we were, you know, kind of preparing to to go live here, but um, some of the stuff that you're into, the stuff you're into, real estate wise, I am just starting to dip my toe and really get interested in that world. So this will be kind of a fun, curious uh, set of questions from me that hopefully every, everyone else is curious about too. Uh, but that's a little teaser. Before we get into all of that, if you don't mind. 
let's dial back. Talk about how you got started, not just in real estate, but in work life, you know, as an adult, like, and, and maybe if you don't mind, and, and if it, if there's something there, because I know you are in sports and I'm always curious uh, what people's lives were like in their home at growing up when they end up being really into sports. Was your dad really into it? Your mom really into it? Like, why did you get into sports? So let's kind of dial back to childhood and then we'll, I'll, I'll fast forward you as, as we get through that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I love that. That's because that's a big part of uh, my identity is how I grew up. You know, I, I was raised in a blue collar house where money was pretty hard to come by. And for what we lacked in money, we definitely made up with in, in work ethic. That's what I learned at a very young age. And my parents weren't big athletes. You know, my, my dad had a pretty rough childhood. He was pretty much on his own since he was about 13 years old. So organized sports was like so off of his radar. You know, he was basically <laughs> yeah. just trying to keep his head above board and not get picked up by social services, essentially. <laughs> but they they always knew that, you know, sports, it's good. It's the same thing I do with my children is it's important to be coachable and learn to yeah. be coached and, yeah. and to push yourself physically and mentally and emotionally, which is sports are great. So I was about five or so when I started playing sports, go soccer was kind of where it really started. And then I got into baseball pretty heavy, but I was, I was really into skateboarding. I was raised really? in California, right? So, yep. you know, punk rock music and skateboarding, and that was pretty much my life. And, you know, my dad was always trying to get me to get in the shop and, and build and do carpentry and stuff like that. And I had no interest in, in working like that because I saw how dang hard he worked. I mean, he'd work incredible mansions. It's Los Angeles, right? So we're talking movie stars and musicians. And then we go home to our house that was, you know, nothing in comparison to all that, you <laughs> yeah, know? So, yeah. um, but I, I knew I never wanted to be on that side of the business, just swinging hammers and stuff like that. So at a yeah. young age, I was just pushed away for it. So I was so focused on skateboarding, which I think is what gave me a lot of my just relentless mindset. You know, yeah, it takes a lot of uh, tenacity to, you know, constantly do a trick and fall and fall and fall and fall and fall until you finally get it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so then something clicked. I don't know when I was about 14 freshman year of high school, I decided I want to play football and I, had never had any interest in playing football, was not attracted to the sport whatsoever. Really? And and all of a sudden I decided to want to play. I think it was about the time I was starting to really get into training and lifting weights and doing stuff like that. And I yeah. saw oh, f- athletes were, they appealed to me, football players. Too. Were you a bigger kid in high school? I mean, were you like tall and built? I mean, I'm 5'11 on a good day. Um, okay. You know, were you and, a 5'11 uh, as a freshman or did you become 5'11 as a 20 year old? You know what I mean? Like some, some kids grow a little later. Yeah, I was bigger when I was younger. Okay. You know, like yeah. when I played soccer, they jokingly called me Moose, you know, because I was just a big brute out <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay. But everybody kind of kept growing and my height didn't. My brother got all the height, you know, he's twelve years younger than me and he's like six two. I'm like, dang, okay. man, I just wanted to break six foot. Yeah. Um yeah. but uh but I fell in love with it and I I I uh played linebacker all through high school. Okay. And uh, you know, I did everything right, man. I was I didn't party, I did good in school. I didn't drink. I was the guy that, uh, for those of you who are seeing this on camera, I still carry on a water jug. I was the guy that carried on the water jug. I had a running coach. You know, I did everything right because all I wanted to do once I found football was play at the collegiate level and specifically play D1. And I was all CIF. I mean, I was, for all intents and purposes, a great football player. But fast forward to my senior year, and I had no scholarship offers. Mm. Uh, Thankfully, a mentor and alumni from the high school said, man, you are good enough to play. What we didn't have was a good recruiting program coming out of the high school. Okay. I just didn't understand how the game was played. Thankfully he reached out to the coach where he played at a little D two school called Western New Mexico. And, uh, 
probably like two weeks later, I had a recruiting trip. 30 days later, I had a scholarship offer. Nice. And thankfully, that's what I needed because my parents couldn't afford to send me to college. Yeah, so yeah. so that was like my ticket to to getting a college degree was through sports. But when I got there, you know, small town football, uh, D2, it, it's, not, it's not what you see on Saturdays, basically. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so... You know, after I had a great, I was a true freshman. After heading into my sophomore season, I knew that I was I was ready to go big or go home. So reached out to my running coach. He went to University of Utah. We called Colorado and we called Utah. They both gave me the plug to walk on, but I had family in Colorado, and uh, and I just I don't know. I was just drawn to Colorado football because I'd seen it yeah. growing up. So yeah. So I made the move, walked away from my scholarship to take the walk on. Wow. Um, no scholarship. I showed up. There was seven guys at the tryout, three of us made the team. And by the end of the spring, the other two guys had quit. So I was the only wow. walk on that made it that spring. And then fast forward a year later, I had switched from linebacker to fullback and thankfully got put back on scholarship. Really? That's yeah. Awesome. So it completely changed the trajectory of my life. You know, when you do something that you feel like is on your heart that you're supposed to do and you go out there and you do it, it really, you know, builds your confidence. You yeah. know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's a lot like it's like, like business and real estate or whatever. The first deal is always the, mo- the most anxiety causing, right? And then you do yeah. it and you're like, dang, I could pretty much do anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So how, what did you like better linebacker or fullback? Still like linebacker better. Yeah. I just, I just had a nose for the football and I, I like to tackle. Yeah. I did not like getting hit necessarily. <laughs> and, well, uh, luckily though, fullbacks get to deliver hits a lot. If they're, if you're a blocking fullback, I mean, if you did a much sure. of that, but you get to go and. I was a glorified guard. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I did a lot of blocking. That was primarily what my responsibility was. Nice. But yet I thought I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. So, you know, I, I studied integrated human physiology and, uh, you know, my grades were not great trying to play D one football and, uh, and manage that. I got C's. I was an average student, (laughs) you know, nothing, nothing spectacular, you know, yeah, yeah. even failed a couple classes in there, you know? Um, but, uh, about my uh, sophomore season, you know, I knew that I was, I wanted to marry the girl that I was dating, my now wife. Of, mm-hmm. It's been 16 years, married for 12. Okay. And, uh, and I started just kind of looking at the path to, you know, the medical world and thought I wanted to get into strength and conditioning, kind of life after college. Sure. And there was just no money in it, honestly. Um, yeah. So I definitely started pursuing the, the appeal would be to go into the financial industry or go into sales or something like that. Yeah. It was very lucky. My father-in-law had been in the futures and commodities space for about 35 years. So for those of you who don't know what futures and commodities are, you know, we're trading things like gold and silver and crude oil and cattle and pigs and soybeans and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And generally it was created to, to hedge uh, against your position if you were a producer, right? Okay. A lot of people speculate in that market and you can make a ton of money because there's crazy amounts of leverage. Um, but uh, yeah, I had I didn't even really know what it was. And he said, you don't have to. He's like, I didn't even go to college, but I spent 35 years in this industry. Yeah. And being a great broker is ultimately about understanding the markets, knowing how to put together good investment suggestions for your clients, mm-hmm. pass your series three, um, which is the licensing exam that you need to do. Yep. And everything after that is just pure grit and tenacity. You know? okay. So, so yeah. So I graduated on a Friday with a degree in human physiology, walked into a futures and commodities brokerage on a Monday. And three months later on September 29th, 2008, the Dow Jones fell 777 points and boom, we were in the middle of the economic housing crisis. Oh my God. So how does, I, again, I don't, I don't know futures and commodities. So how does that affect you there? How, how did that, was that, was it's, that so a yeah. 
Was that something you could really leverage to, to be successful or did that just crush your, your chances? So in the, in the, do you know what going short is in the stock market? Only from the movie, but yeah. Yeah. So in the futures market, you can enter the market by buying or selling. You don't necessarily have to own the the commodity to do it. Cause okay. it's it, essentially if I bought um, a contract of, of corn and I took it all the way through to delivery, then I would have to basically buy corn from a farmer. This is actually, yeah. yeah. And if I sold it, I have to, I would have to sell it. So okay. when you're speculating, you can make a lot of money on the upside or the downside. In fact, you can make more on the downside because they're generally more violent. Right. Okay. Yep. It didn't affect me per se uh, directly. So it affected some of my clients for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I tell this story all the time is the people in my book of business who consistently made money were the farmers were the producers because they always own the hard asset behind whatever they were trading. Right. So that's when the, the switch kind of started to turn for me is that speculating is not the way to actually make money. Owning hard assets is the key to do that. Yeah. And so that's what piqued my interest about real estate. And then obviously I was just in the throes of the housing crisis. So yeah. I really understood what, you know, here college kid, integrated human physiology, never even walked into the business school and then boom, you're thrown in the middle of the economic <laughs> housing crisis. You know, it's like, yeah. Well, the reason I was asking too was because I started in my real estate business started in 08. So I started right sort of at the bottom or right as it was getting to the bottom. And in real estate, to start at that time, for some people, they, they lost tons of money and their business went out of, you know, they just, they, they got crushed. But it really was a good time to start because real estate was dirt cheap, right? So I didn't yep. I didn't even know how good it was when I started because I, I didn't know anything, right? Dummy, but I didn't know. But if had I known and what I know now, that's a fantastic time to be in real estate when everything's crashing. Like, that's great. I would have owned half the city if I would have known now what I, you know, known now what I know now. But um, that's why I was wondering if there was any similarities in, in what you were doing that it was actually a lot of bad things happening, but really a good time if you know how to take advantage of that. Yeah, the hard the hard part about commodities is just the leverage and the volatility. Yeah, and so you know, for example, you we would come in and you're trading crude oil, for example, and the market would be up five dollars. That's a five thousand dollar move. Yeah, like that, and it would close negative four dollars. That's a nine thousand dollar swing in the market. Right. And so when the markets are doing this and you have to trade on margin and your margins are constantly changing every day, only the players with the really big bank accounts, right? You, you yeah. know, you, we always said you had to have a million dollars to trade with and you could only leverage about 1% so that you could properly reposition in order to stay really? in power wow. essentially, you know? Yeah. I mean? Yeah. So it's, so it's, it's a big boys game. Yep. Let's just put it like that. Um, you can <laughs> trade mini contracts and, and we traded against, uh, you know, you can trade Dow futures, you can trade NASDAQ futures and, and S and P 500 futures, even currencies are traded on the futures market as well. Now, from um, a guy who went through high school without drinking, without smoking, without doing anything, how crazy of an industry is that? Not necessarily you, but like just in general, what it, does that drive people to drinking and excess? Is it just a wild, like you see in the movies, does it get crazy like that? It's it's definitely stressful. You know, like that's ultimately what pushed me out of the industry is right at the time as I was coming in, real-time quotes were becoming a thing. So the mm. technology was there, the edge of the broker where they kind of hold the book and they call the floor and they have the access that was, that was fading. Okay. So we had to do more managed money, more trading systems, selling trading newsletters and things like that. Yeah. And when you have uh, customers who are in the coffee market, which opens at like one o'clock in the morning or something like that, 
and you're sleeping with a laptop next to your bed because uh, you're worried about everybody going sideways in the middle of the night, yeah, man, it just destroys your quality of life. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's really a 24 hour game. If I was going to trade commodities today, I would be probably a day trader um, because I just, I can't sleep at night. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Doing that. And, and that's probably the appeal to real estate is I sleep really dang good at night. You know, when I hold my real estate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So how long were you in that, that industry? It was four years four I was years. doing that. So, okay. so right, okay. you know, right when the crisis started and everybody was really running out, I was running in because kind of like you, it was like, I didn't have anything to lose. Like I got, yeah. you know, negative money and student loans. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just like, I, I, I got nothing to lose at this point. So it totally, it was awesome. And it, it was a, it was a trial by fire in economics Yeah, and it set the stage for how I approach real estate today, which is managing your risk. One of my mentors basically said, the probability that you're going to lose in the futures game is very, very high. So it's all about controlling your losses because mm-hmm. when you win, your wins are going to be massive. Yeah. But if you have massive losses, you'll never get out. And if you go look at the sharp ratios, which is the relative risk to reward ratio on commodities, say versus like stocks, bonds, or even um, core commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's practically a zero sum game. It is a matter of time before all of your gains get wiped out because you made one stupid mistake. And yeah. I've seen it. People take their accounts from 25,000 to a million and back down. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> that's crazy. Well, that's a good segue. So how how and why did you go from that life to real estate? Because you got your orthopedic surgeon degree, that that kind of track. You go into uh, this this futures and commodities, and then at some point you transition to real estate. Like you're not necessarily, you know, jumping from one part of an industry to another little segment of it. Like you're jumping whole industries. How did how did real estate hit your radar? Like why did why real estate? You know, once I learned about just all the ways that you can make money in real estate, um, and I I could see that. Every mentor that I had in my life who was successful owned real estate or owned businesses. Yeah. And uh, I learned that we're in a capitalistic society, right? So the government relies on us to do two things, create jobs and create housing. Mm-hmm. And if you do those two things, you receive the maximum benefit of the tax code. And so, you know, when you're a broker and you're seeing like people like send you $500,000 checks to open up their account, you're like, well, how do you, you know, I'm 20... 23 years old, you know, <laughs> yeah. never really seen a check that big before. I'm like, yeah. Whoa, how do these people? And a lot of them would say, Oh, I made my money in real estate. Like, this is just me. This is play money for me. Like, well, yeah. wow. Like, give me some of that play money. Exactly. Um, so that was what kind of initially drew to me. And then, you know, the concept of housing, like, you know, I didn't want to swing hammers, but I'd always been around that. I mean, yeah. we, you know, my dad worked on some incredible, incredible projects. You know, we're talking like, Don Henley. Uh, we're talking about the CEO of Robinson's May. You know, we would go into these homes and we're like, wow, this is incredible. So I was at yeah. this little lure. Um, I I was more attracted initially to the idea of like luxury real estate, to be honest. I thought it was just cool. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd never owned anything like that. So I thought it'd be fun to sell that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was in this uh, position where I was a part of this fast growing marketing and technology company and uh and started to make some pretty good money so i started looking for ways to offset my taxable income yep. and create other sources of income and you know things happen when you're in a startup where your your income you know is going great and they got to pause it and you know things adjust and that puts stress on you and sure. so i started looking for ways to just create alternative income streams yeah. ultimately yeah. 
And real estate to me seemed like it made the most sex sense because I got the tax benefits and yeah. I got the cash flow from it. So so multifamily is your is your real estate of choice. Did you ever consider flipping, you know, single family? Like why why multifamily? How did you get to that? Yeah. So uh, very first real estate deal I ever did was bought a single family and converted it to an up down duplex, uh, basically because I was able to see the zoning on it. I've mm-hmm. done some I've done some fix and flips. I've wholesale wholesaled some deals. I've got just general single family cash flow properties. Yep. Um, I've done all that, but the it's just scale, right? And so there's this in real estate, I think as you start going to, as you kind of go from like start, you're starting, you're like ready to do your next deal. Yeah. There's this misconception that you have to have all the money to do yeah. the deal. Yeah. You have to get the loan from a traditional bank. You have to, you know, all those convention that conventional wisdom has yeah. to be, has to be broken. And, and even if I was doing one to two deals a year for the next 10 years, right. I'd build up a portfolio of 20 rentals. But if I spent three years, did no deals, raised capital, built broker relationships, built my team and aggressively went after finding one awesome deal, I could get to a hundred units like that. Right. And so it was scale. So being from the marketing and technology company, you know, we took that company from 35 employees to just under 600 and a little over hundred million in revenue. Scale is a very powerful thing. Sure. Um, And so I just got that concept like, really early. And so actually back in 2000 and excuse me, 2018, I, uh, I started looking at the state of the economy. So we talked about being smarter, right? If I knew then what I know now Yeah. in 2018, I was uh, responsible for doing a ton of recruiting. We were at that point in the largest expansion since world war II. Uh, unemployment was like 2.8%. And there was this growing, um, challenge of recruiting talent because people just had, there was more jobs available than there was actually people. Yeah. And so I just kept telling myself this every day. I was like losing out on recruiting talent to other better offers. I'm like, this is insane, right? And things are just too good right now is what I kept telling myself. They're just too good. And I I read a book called uh, Unshakable written by Tony Robbins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you haven't read it, it's a great book. But it was talking specifically about market cycles. And if you really start to look back in history, ever since we, under President Roosevelt, we detached our currency from the gold standard and we started printing money. We live in this paper fiat currencies, you know, debt and uh, debt cycle. Yeah. Every eight to ten years, the market kind of cycles through. So we were hitting that, you know, 2008, 2018, and yep. I'm starting to sell a couple things off. And we sold our primary residence and we downsized into a townhome. People are like you're crazy. Things are good. What's what's going on? Why would you do that? And I'm like, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And you, the way that you think it's going to happen, it's not going to happen. And then. I was standing in a, I did a talk in Fort Collins to the economic development group. And I was talking about the importance of, we need to get more jobs and more small business startups here because small businesses are the backbone of the economy. And if we don't do it, we're going to, you know, we're going to, it's going to be too late. Something is going to happen. I don't know what it's going to be or how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And I told the story about the Dow Jones falling 777 points in a single day. And I said, that would be equal to the market falling 1800 points today. And two weeks later, 1800 points is what it fell in a single day, which set off the COVID, the COVID collapse. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't yeah. repeat itself this exactly the same way, but it will rhyme and it'll come in a form that you do not expect. Yeah. Um, totally. So, totally. So, you know, my, from taking that from, you know, what I know with trading futures to where you're at now, there's no time like the presence to be super uh, critical of, 
your deals. Yeah. Uh, readjusting your portfolio because we we're not out of the woods. You know, we've, we've definitely kicked the can down the road a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I digressed a little bit there. On no, the that's okay. I, that's okay. It was interesting stuff. So again, I, I ask this of a lot of my guests and some people get a little squirrely, not squirrely. Some people get a little uncomfortable. That's a better word. And some people like have definite opinions. I know you don't have a crystal ball. I get it. You're not predicting here for anybody, but given the state of, our economy and what's happening and COVID and all that, like you referenced kicking the can down the road, right? The stimulus and the forbearance and all this stuff. What do you feel like is, is the next 12 to 24 months of, of real estate? Do you see, cause we're prices are just like high and everything's white hot. It's crazy time, right? To your point, it, it's like so good. How long can this last? I'll, I'll just start. I, I've been saying this for a while and I was wrong about when it might start, but I really don't believe house prices can stay like this. I don't even think they're necessarily going to level off. I think there has to be a little bit of a correction. I think they're going to come back down to reality a little bit. What do you think? What what are your thoughts? And and I don't know. I thought we would start seeing something by now. Not that it was going to crash or anything dramatic, but I would have thought we'd start seeing some tailing off, maybe a little bit of reductions you know, by now, but what are you thinking? You're, you're in, you're out there. You're like you're looking at real estate. I know that you're, you're preparing your team for what you think could happen. You're preparing yourself and you're trying to position yourself. What do you think is going to happen? Ooh, that's a, a loaded question. Um, I'm worried about stagflation where things become so expensive uh, that it's just impossible for businesses to, to hire, to operate, for us to build. I mean, just the cost of building right now is pretty intense. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I, I also own a couple of businesses. So I always look at things from both perspectives, like as an, as an owner, right. Mm-hmm. I'm also looking at them as an investor and I'm also a commercial real estate broker too. Right. Yeah. So it is going to get to a point where it'll just, it'll just flatline and we can't raise rates. I mean, the, unfortunately, uh, the, what we've done with our, our monetary policy has put ourselves in a position where we're just, if we raise rates, I mean, that could be drastic collapse to the stock market, honestly, because people have not been going into the bond market because there's no yield. Right. And so it's going to be a very uh, careful unwinding of um, what happens. I think that uh, there's a great book called the American Jubilee that talks specifically about where we're at in our economic cycle and and what what he predicts will happen based off of what history has said and yeah. basically the next move that's probably going to come from the fed is they're going to be working towards debt cancellation and likely forms will be consumer debt uh, maybe even student loan debt because the thought under Keynesian economics is if you have more money you'll spend more money so that that'll yeah. be the next move that they try to do in order to stimulate the economy well now look they don't have the student loan payment so they can actually afford a bigger mortgage so we can actually approve them for more right that yeah. back end number will yeah. make more sense yep um so that just exacerbates the problem even more so affordability is going to be the number one biggest challenge that we have in the next 10 years no questions asked and what we're seeing is the people from California are moving to Colorado and the people from Colorado are moving to the Midwest where you can actually still get yield and there's good cap rates. So that that'll kind of, you know, force those markets up. And and then at that point, you know, what do you do? Right. So there has to be maybe some other tax incentives that are going to come out from the government to try to accelerate affordable housing. I think conversion of 
properties from one type to another, like office space to condos or mm. residential hotels to multifamily. Yep. Those are going to have the most legs because even if I took an office space and I converted it into a multifamily property and I had to go, you know, pay for five million more dollars worth of water to feed the property, it's still cheaper than going ground up. Yeah, for sure. Right. So, so you're you're predicting a full on apocalypse at Senate. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> yeah. So basically. So yeah. So basically. So <laughs> let me ask this. I'm going to ask a similar question in a different way. If I'm old. I'm always a fan. When people ask me, like, how's the market, right? Because they know I'm a real estate investor. How's the market? My response is always, the market's great. The market isn't good or bad. It's just how you react to it. What do you do? What are your strategies? And how do you, you know, how do you react to what's going on around you? The, the market isn't inherently good or bad. It depends on where you are, I guess. Um, but if somebody had a strategy for their investments, like they wanted to buy a certain amount of multifamily, a certain amount of doors, and they sort of had this three-year plan, you know, a year and a half ago. And they're like, I, I want to get this many doors and this is what I'm going to do. In general, do you think they should stick to the plan, double down, or maybe hold off a little? What I'm getting at is, is the market going to be the kind of market coming up in the next year or two, in your opinion, where you want to actually just like don't worry about house, like just keep going with what you're going to doing or like double down because things are just going to keep going up. Like buy them now because it's not going to get better. Like, you know what I'm saying? Who, how would you talk to that person if they're like, what do I do? Yeah. Um, so there's a misconception in real estate that things just go up forever. And so I, you know, appreciation to me, at least in the form that comes in like single family homes, which is really just driven by the market. Yeah is kind of like a cherry on top. So if that's, if that's your sole strategy is I'm just going to buy it, even though there's negative cash flow in this property, because it's going to go up mm -hmm. eventually you will get crushed. Right. Yeah. Um, in 2008, it was easy to find a deal, yeah. right? Like yeah. the deal, the deals were on, you just turn on and every corner, there was a deal. You could yeah. find one. Totally. Those deals still exist today. So what you're seeing is a separation of the unsophisticated retail investor and the serious investor like me who can find an off-market opportunity, close on it all cash in 12 days, right? And then yep. come in and lease up the property and improve the value by $200,000. And no matter what happens, if the world collapses and I have to drop my rents to rock bottom prices... I can still I can still break even for a very long time. Yeah. So the there is no time like the present to be judicious in your underwriting and extremely critical of everything that you're doing because mm. confirmation bias is a very real thing and you'll see be so excited about a deal or a market or why you want to be into that thing and you'll convince yourself of reasons why it's good. So yeah. that's why like on our team we have we have a very tight box that we're trying to fit it into and we lose on a lot of deals because we're just not willing to pay a five cap in a seven cap market. Right. You know, the price is the price is the price. And and banking on the fact that the next 10 years are going to be as good as the last 10 years is a recipe for disaster that we saw play out in 2008. Totally. I, I could not agree more, certainly with the equity part, cherry on top. 100% agree with all of that stuff. So you brought it up. Let's talk about it a little bit because I know there's two things that people always, well, there's a lot of things that people ask, but there's two things that people ask me a lot when it comes to real estate and investing. 
number one, where do I get the money? Okay, you 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 kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier. But number two, you talked about this box. What is the criteria? What are you looking for at a high level? We don't need necessarily all of your calculations, but at a high level, what what constitutes a good deal? And when you got started in this, assuming you just didn't have millions and millions, and you just funded everything yourself. How did you find that money? Because you talked about spending three years like building your team and raising money and like. Where do, how did you learn and where did you start raising money for those of the people that are listening who haven't really done that yet? Yep. So um, there's a million ways to make a million bucks in real estate and you have different strategies for different approaches. And yep. so I'll speak to three, right? So uh, when we're buying a, a cash flow property, whether it's like a, a single family or a small multi-residential family, uh, multifamily, we're always looking to get it at like 65% of market. And 65% of market means that we can go in and we can put some cash into it, put some time, energy, and expertise into it and still not be above the market price. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's our, we call it our oh shit number, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If the world melts down, can I just put these numbers at my mortgage and just write it out? Yes. Yeah. I can drop my rents 50, 60% and still be okay. okay. You know what I mean? Yep. So that's, that's that strategy. And those are very hard to come by. You're rarely, if ever going to find those on the MLS, unless you're, you're finding something that's um, maybe mismarketed by the broker or right. something like that. Right. On a, like a mobile home, for example, that strategy is a little different. So we back into that knowing that a lot of those deals are going to be seller financed. Right. Yeah. And so on that deal, we're going to go, okay, well, what's, what's market for rent. And if I buy it at this price and I can do this rehab and sell it at this price, and know that I'm going to have to finance it for three years at $1,200, but this person can own it in three years. Well, that's incredibly attractive to that yeah. person, right? So now I have a strategy to cater to the audience that I'm going after. When we get into large scale commercial multifamily stuff, our deal box is really, we don't do heavy value add stuff. So nothing that's like crazy renovation. Mm -hmm. We're buying properties that need light to moderate value add. You know, we're going to come in and and dress up the leasing office and the pool and renovate the units and um, maybe put $5,000 to $10,000 in per unit to bring them up to market. Okay. Right? And we're going to stage that out over the course of like three to four years to do that entire renovation plan mm -hmm. because that whole game of commercial real estate is based off of cap rate and being able to improve the net operating income and be yep. able to sell that at a higher valuation in the future. Yep. Um, when we look at the deal, we're always analyzing off of, you know, what is the market cap rate? Like what are things selling for and operating for in this market? Then what are we buying it for? Sure. Sometimes you're going to pay a bit of a premium on the front end because there's Delta or opportunity. There's mismanagement that, you know, you can fix yeah. in order to get the cap rate better. Right. Yep. Um, if that Delta doesn't exist, there is no value add for us. Then it gets canned. Right. Yep. Um, but Above all, when it comes to like large commercial multifamily, because it's a little bit challenge, more challenging to just do in your backyard, you're looking a little bit more nationally. You have to know why you want to be in a market. Yep. If you can't tell me why you're in that market, then you have no business being in that market. Yeah. And once you know why you want to be in that market, then you need to go build your team. Who's your property managers? Do you have relationships with brokers? Right? Do you have boots on the ground? Yep. And then from there, it comes down to the submarket. What? the three to five miles around your apartment complex is going to make up 80% of your tenant base, right? Mm -hmm. We're in the B grade commercial multifamily. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with serving uh, lower income populations in C and D grade type apartment complexes. Yep. 
it's just another risk factor, right? Because those people tend to have different kinds of jobs, right? And so the whole game from my experience trading futures is it's all about managing my risk. And that's the beautiful thing about real estate is you can see what those things are. So we, we literally try to check every risk factor off of the box, right? And, and plan out our business plan strategically within reason. We're literally being super um, conservative. Okay. In the event that something like we never expected happens, i.e. COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. So imagine I went into a property and I'm like, oh, we're just going to, we're going to clear out all the tenants. We're going to do the renovation plan in six months. We're going to lease it up. We're going to put, you know, $2 million into this property and I'll be able to get X for my rents. And then COVID happens. And in 30 days, your entire business plan just fell apart. Yep. You are screwed and yes. you're never going to be able to dig yourself out of that hole. Um, you won't be able able to recover. You'll never do a syndication deal again because nobody <laughs> will want to invest with you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because you yeah. totally just screwed the pooch. It is your fiduciary responsibility when you're dealing with other people's money to be a steward of their capital and yeah. do an incredible job in your underwriting. So it's all about risk aversion. Totally. Now, the, the other part of your question was, how did I get started or how did I get money? How did, how did, how did you start raising money? What, what What is, for someone who's never raised money for a multifamily deal or whatever, how, how do you even go down that road? What's the process and what do you suggest to people when they start raising money? You know, there's... um. The best, the way that it was taught to me is there's like a couple ways that you get into the industry. You're born into it, which most of us aren't. Right. Very few, probably 10, 20 years from now, we'll say, oh yeah, I was, there'd be tons of people born in the syndication <laughs> business, but yeah. there's just not, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you spend seven to 10 years working in an industry, like maybe like commercial lending or property management or yeah. something where you you gain the skills and the re, the relationships that you need. Yep. You go bang your head against the wall. That's option number three, or you get a good mentor. So yeah. I, I had a combination of that, seven to 10 years of being in finance and investing, yep. um, banging my head against the wall, making a ton of mistakes. And then when I knew I wanted to go the route of syndication, having come from a company where we, I'm very systems-based, right? And, and we built recipes. I know one thing that success leaves clues. And so I found a mentor and said, Hey, teach me everything that you know, so that I can get from point A to point B much quicker. Yeah. Um, And so mentorship was a big piece of that. But I think what frame shift, right? The reason that our company is called Growth View Properties is because you need a growth mindset when you start getting into syndication. Most people think things like, Well, I could never buy an apartment complex because I don't have that much money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or they think things like, why would anybody give me money to invest, right? Yep. The reality of it is, is you're providing an invaluable service to people that would otherwise be unattainable yes. without you. Yes. The vast majority of people, they love the idea of real estate. They, I mean, they there's probably, they read the webinar, done the webinars, podcasts, read the books, yep. and they go, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough expertise. I don't want to start a business. I didn't know that's what this was going to be, right? Yeah. And so then they're at this crossroads where they decide, okay, um, I guess I'll just do traditional investing, right? Or, you know, maybe I'll buy a house in a couple of years. Yep. Or they discover that there's this whole new world of being a passive limited partner inside of larger deals where they can get more uh, scale, probably better and and safer returns than they could ever get in, in a residential family, especially right now with as expensive as it is. Totally. And all the benefits that come along with owning real estate, cash flow, appreciation, loan pay down, and the depreciation or the tax benefits on the back end, and none of the brain damage, right? If, <laughs> if, you're, a, if yeah. you're killing it 
as an entrepreneur, you're killing it as a professional and you're in a career that you love and you're passionate about. It's all about taking that good income and parlaying it into other sources yep. of income yep. and, in, and investing with other people. If, if your roof was leaking, who would you call? Roofer. Okay. Cool. <laughs> if, uh, if your tooth was hurting, where would you go? A dentist. Right. So it's no different, yeah, right? If you yeah. want to get access to an, an investment in real estate, you're going to go find other people who put together those kinds of deals yep. and place capital with them. And that's what the wealthy people understand that most like middle-class, you know, high income earners don't fully grasp yet is they surround themselves with a ton of really smart people. Mm-hmm. They're really good at critically analyzing deals yeah, and then deploying capital and saying, hey, you go do your thing. And they have horizontal streams of income. They're not focused on vertical streams of income because yeah. at a certain point, you're one person. And if you go down, who cares if you're making 500 grand? If you don't have any other cash flow, you're pretty much screwed at that point. Totally. And I love that analogy. Everything you said, 100% spot on. I love it. And I agree with all of it. There's no there's no debate there at all. But you did mention your property, uh, Growth View Properties, or you're not your property, your company, Growth View Properties. Talk a little bit about what, what you do. What do you, what do you do in that company? Um and how can people get involved if they want? I, I assume you're you're raising money, you're doing other things. Is there an opportunity within that company or do you offer anything to people who want to get started? In terms of learning or in just investing? Uh, let's start with investing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the game of uh, real estate syndication is a combination of finding deals, putting together those deals, raising money and closing on those deals. Yeah. And so we're always looking for people who are are making a good amount of money and want to invest with other real estate professionals. You know, yeah. I'm a commercial real estate broker. My partner is a commercial loan originator. My other partner is a private equity guy. Okay. My other guy's a partner is a, a professional investor and he's an elite level uh, anti-terrorist strategist in the military. Right. And so we literally live and breathe this stuff, you yeah. know? So yeah. if you are looking for a group to feel confident in placing capital with, we can help you with that. Now we also have very key relationships with, some really good co-investment partners, you know, who, you know, manage $750 million in multifamily assets. And, yeah. uh, and we co-invest money with those guys and, and put together some really awesome deals. So going there is a great way to learn about, about what we do. Growth, thegrowthview.com is the best way. Thegrowthview.com. Got it. How, by the way, just curiosity, how do you ever meet a guy who's a anti-terrorist strategist, like, is he active now or is he is he, he is active, active duty military, yep. Active. So how do you meet Most a guy? Most of the time like, he's just like, I'm working on some cool stuff, but I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Thanks. The coolest thing about having a friend like that is knowing what he's working on, but he can't tell you. That's awesome. Yeah. Like maybe in 20 years when we're drinking beers, he'll tell me one day. <laughs> so talk talk to me a little bit about your 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 company. What is the long term strategy here? Where where are you guys at now? Just give people a sense of of your growth of not your growth, of the size of the company, like you know, what what's under management, like assets under management, that kind of thing. Like, where are you now and where are you trying to go? Yeah. So the strat- the strategy for this is it's long-term. Okay. You know, most of these deals are, you're holding on to them for five to seven years mm-hmm. within maybe upwards of 10 years. And the same strategies that apply in residential real estate and things like that, you know, using 1031 strategies and parlaying up yep. into, into bigger deals. That's the goal for us. It's about uh, building a, a legacy portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um some of, some of these syndication businesses are focused on, you know, building a massive portfolio and selling it to a REIT or building a massive portfolio and converting it to a REIT and going public or doing mm-hmm. something like that. But for us, the strategy has always been about providing long-term legacy wealth for our families and for our investors. 
and um, providing incredible places, safe, clean places to live in our communities. That's ultimately what makes us very fulfilled. And on the back of that, we're building our own endowment fund uh, with the intention of investing, uh, giving a gift to charity is great, but building an endowment fund where you can make investments in charities in perpetuity Man, that's that's life changing, right? And then on top of that, you build this endowment that gets to invest in your deals, and it continues to grow. You know, right? Forever. That's um, smart. Actually, it's very smart. It's very cool. I mean, it's very nice, obviously, but it's also super smart, like business smart. And well, never- yeah, you, you can give your money to the government, right? Or I can put it into endowment and invest in, in in charities and things that I actually care about, right? Sure. Instead of just giving it to them. That's awesome. And then, uh, and then in terms of the strategy, you know, we've always just focused on states where the inclement weather is not too high, um, where we um, it's business friendly, it's landlord friendly. And yeah. we've we've shifted a little bit because the there's Texas has been a crazy hot market like everybody's in Texas. Yeah. Um, Denver's been a crazy hot market because everybody's there. Yeah. The uh, the Carolinas have been very hot markets. Still, some of those smaller MSAs are are going to grow up into bigger ones over yeah. the next 10, 10 years or so. So, um, you know, markets like uh, Columbia, South Carolina or Oklahoma city yeah. or Huntsville, Alabama or Fayetteville, Arkansas or Boise, you know, those are all great markets where, where I think there's some good opportunity for the, for the next 10 years. So we're just, we're focusing in on the Midwest and, and we're getting real clear on, on markets like, you know, Oklahoma city. We're just going to go dominate that market. Okay. So we don't, we don't own anything there right now. Yeah. I was going to ask you, maybe you just answered the question, but are you focused more? I know you said B level assets. Are you more in like tertiary markets or are you going into the bigger cities too? Is that part of your strategy? Yeah. Larger MSAs is, is the goal. And that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's supply and demand. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, at about 500,000 in population, you, you kind of reach critical mass where yeah. there's there's enough demand from the renter base. There's enough well-qualified third-party property management, mm-hmm. and there's enough assets to go after that probably are starting to age yep. that need to be renovated up to the market. The, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say the demand for multifamily is like not slowing down based off what we were talking about with the affordable housing crisis, mm-hmm. population growth, household formation, huge swells in the renter demographic from the baby boomers to the Gen Y and the Gen Z. So yeah. We need to build 4.6 million net new apartments by 2030 just to keep up. We can't even build that much. We will only be able to build probably 3 million. Yeah. So taking aging inventory and keeping that on the market is an incredibly valuable strategy for sure. maintaining affordable housing. Yeah. And I do think the, you know, the things that happened in 08 and in COVID and what's going on now, I do think that that sort of creates a mindset of, we don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to get in the, I don't ever want to go through foreclosure, losing my house, whatever. Like we're going to rent. Like I think it pushes people toward renting anyway. So this whole COVID thing, I think is from a, you know, from someone who has, you know, who's buying multifamily or if you're buying rentals or whatever, I I think it's, it's all good. I think there's going to, that's going to keep the demand pretty high to your point. Right. I I totally totally agree agree. with you. Yeah, man. So listen, go ahead, go, go, go. I was going to say, and the untethered economy now with remote work. Yeah, yeah, so, that's so true. That's a really good point. Yes, everyone working from home, businesses realizing they don't need these offices, they can hire anybody anywhere. It's so true. I think that's absolutely going to drive it. Yep. Totally, man. Well, listen, I could talk about this all day long. I love I love this whole subject, and, and I love you bring a much 
a different perspective and an angle than other people I've spoken to because your background, your knowledge, um, just amazing wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate it. If people want to get a hold of you to find out more, if they want to figure out other things you're involved in or just get involved in, in your in your company and as an investor or somebody who wants to come to you to try to learn, how can they get a hold of you? What can they do? You know, the best place to start if if passive investing is new to you and it's something that you want to learn more about, the very first skill set you need to to build is the ability to learn how to critically analyze deals, right? You need to understand how the game comes together. So yep. I've actually built a, a masterclass and a course. You can head over to passiveinvesting.pro and you can learn more about that, learn more about what we're doing at GrowthView, get connected with us, as well as if it's something that interests you, get signed up for the course. Cool. We will have those links in the show notes, along with the books that you mentioned, by the way. I want to give people uh, the opportunity to go back and, and check those out because uh, the first one you mentioned, Tony Robbins' book, is awesome. Uh, the second one I have not read, so I want to see it myself too. But we'll get all in the show notes so people can find those. Um, listen, man, Samson, it's been awesome to get to know you a little bit and learn about your business. Clearly, you know what you're talking about. You're a smart guy. So if you want to check that out, go to those links he just gave you. We'll have them in the show notes. If you're driving, running on a treadmill, whatever, don't stop. You can go and get those from us later, man. Thanks for doing this again. I really appreciate your time. You bet, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I had a good time interviewing Samson. I did not know him prior, uh, so it was fun getting to know him. And I love his background. His background is very, you know, analytics driven. And I think that's exactly how he approaches his business, which I highly recommend, guys. If you don't know this, I am a big fan of tracking your numbers understanding your numbers, and then analyzing those numbers to understand what you do going forward. He also has a conservative approach to how he approaches real estate. And uh, in the beginning, for sure, I think that that's a very, very good thing to do as you grow in things. And, And certainly when you're dealing with large sums of money, like Samson is, being conservative and being a real, he said, a really good steward of other people's money is so important. You cannot screw that up. When you're borrowing money, you must do the right thing. You must be conservative. You must give them the returns that they are expecting. If you want to grow and have that generational wealth that Samson was talking about. So great episode. Really enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to Samson. I hope you guys got a lot out of it. If you're thinking about multifamily investing, guys, uh, then you need to find a mentor. Like he said, uh, we have an event coming up that I'm going to be part of called Multifamily Live in June. If you'd like more information about that, shoot me an email at mike at juststartrealestate.com and I will get you all of the details. It's going to be awesome. All right, guys. Until next time, get out there, get going, make something happen, make today the best day. Talk to you next time.